We hope you enjoy listening to this weekly podcast from Lifeline Church. Find out more by visiting lifelinechurch.co.uk. Second teaching in a row. Right, I'm teaching today. That's me. Yeah. I am what I am. Does anyone remember Popeye when he used to be on TV? Oh. It's not one of the things that they've done a remake of, really, is it? So, I want to talk today about identity, and it's a big question in life, and you'll come across it in many a movies. There's a problem. Oh. Right, we're just getting the sound sorted. Okay, here we go. Who am I? I don't know. Okay. That's a problem we have in life. It seems a really simple question, but at the same time, it's a really complicated question. We try lots of different identities, try them on, see if they fit, if they suit us, if we're happy with them, if we're comfortable in them. Sometimes we don't really ever find what we're comfortable with and the answer to that question of who am I. Then I started to think, how do we get our identity? Do we design and then build it for ourselves? Do we discover it? Is there a whole menu of us that we can select bits of, that we like, that we emphasize? Is my identity the same as my desires? You could go to university and study all those questions for three years and make the world much richer for it. (laughs) But it's important that we build according to a good foundation. You don't want to be building something that is weak and vulnerable to stand the test of time. So what is an identity? Well, for the sake of today, I'm going to say that the identity is what makes me, me, as opposed to you. So there's certain things that make me different. It's that sense of self or sense of worth. So let's have a little little try. With the person next to you, one of you says to the, answers question one, what five words would you use to describe yourself? And then your partner has to answer the next question. Okay, right? That's definitely more than five words. Now the second question. Oh, I've got you going now, haven't I? People love talking about themselves. Right? Next question. This is better than getting you both to answer this question. Right, now the other partner says, what would you like someone to write about you in your obituary? When you die... What do you want someone to think about you after your death? 
Okay. So, I'm sure, I'm sure that was enlightening to hear those five words and how you'd like to be thought of after you're dead. So what makes up an identity? Well, we can base our identity on family relationships, talents, beliefs, our past, our desires, our career or our profession, our beauty. I mean, that's what mine's based on most of the time. <laughs> Our group identity. Gosh, they're rowdy today, aren't they? Our demographics can be our basis for our identity. For some reason, I've got a tennis theme now. What was Chris Everts' identity based on? She said, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It made me feel, it, it was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, the applause, in order to have an identity. Her identity was established on sand. Uh, another tennis player, anyone? On? Know who this was? Andre Agassi. Now, during the late 80s, the early 90s, his beautiful flowing locks helped cultivate his heartthrob image. At least that's the article that I read. But Agassi was only 19 years old when he started losing his hair. And he said... Every morning I would get up and find another piece of my identity on the pillow in the wash basin or down the plug hole. And so he decided, what else can I do apart from wearing a hairpiece? And he said, do I really want to wear a, wear a hairpiece, a toupee on a tennis court? And he had to answer himself, what other options do I have? So during the warm-up, to a training, uh, the warm-up training before playing, I prayed not for victory, but that my hairpiece would not fall off. <laughs> and he goes on to say, with each leap, I imagined it falling into the sand. I imagined millions of spectators moving closer to their TV sets, their eyes widening, and in dozens of dialect and language, ask, how's Andre Agassi's hair falling from his head? <laughs> he lost the French open final in 1990 because he was distracted about his hairpiece coming off. Gosh, interesting what we can base our identity on. So how do we get an identity? Well, <clears throat> well, <laughs> our culture tells us how we get an identity. It's not very very well written. It's kind of all inferred. You kind of sense it around you and in popular culture. But in traditional societies, you gained your identity through your community and your role and part that you play within that community. You are the son of, the daughter of. You are um, 
the one that plays a particular role within the community. And so it's considered in those cultures heroic to, be, to deny yourself for the sake of the community. Whereas we live in a Western culture where we, we would teach that our culture, uh, our identity is gained by looking inside of us and then asserting that on the, on the world around us by saying, this is who I am, you've got to accept me for who I am. I've decided this is it. And so it's heroic to, to self-assert, to force your identity around you. I don't care what anyone thinks, this is me. I'm being me. You kind of hear that. You get that in every Disney movie. You get that in everything in society when someone's uh, being interviewed. Well, this is just who I am. There are some problems with our culture's description of how to get identity. So with the self-assertion model, the first problem that we see is incoherent and unstable. Because inside you is a whole bunch of warring desires that are incompatible with each other. I desire to be with this person in this this romantic relationship, but I also desire this career, and I can't do both at once. So, okay, which one's me is difficult to, to, to decide. Our identity needs to be something which is durable and constant, but my insides are constantly changing. Lewis Smead said, my wife has been has lived with at least five different men since we were married. And all of them were me. Because we aren't stable, we are changing. Which one is really me? Now, for those of a slightly more mature position, you might look back and you think, when I was 15, I am glad I didn't get all the things that I wanted. It would have ruined me. And then when you reach the tender age of 30, you think, well, I'm, so that's what you're saying when you're 30, you're looking back when you're 15, thank good thing I didn't get all that I want. By the time you get to 45, you look back at what you wanted when you're 30, you think, thank goodness I didn't get all that I want. We keep going, we keep going, we keep looking back and think, thank goodness I didn't get what I wanted back then. Think by the time you're about to die, how much your desires and focus would have changed. So it's unstable to say that we can draw out from within us and assert it on the world. It's also an illusion, because in reality, you don't get to really choose. You've got all these rumblers of contradicting feelings inside you. How do you decide which ones to express? Well, take an Anglo-Saxon male from some time ago. He's got two feelings warring inside of him. One is that is of aggression, and we say, he, he said, I'm going to assert that. I'm going to express my aggression because that is acceptable within my culture. But another desire he has is same-sex attraction. He said, well, now I've got to repress that because that wouldn't work well within my culture. Fast forward that to someone in London today. Maybe the aggression, well, that's the one you repress. You see a psychiatrist about that. But the same-sex attraction, no, that's you. You exert that. You express that. So... Am I really choosing, or is my culture telling me what I'm allowed to and not allowed to do? 
there's a huge pressure with the self-assertion model. Because if you're saying nothing else can define you, you can be exactly who you want to be, it's pretty suffocating. Because the only one that is responsible for the failure is you for not being who you want to be. You might have thought, well, in the traditional culture, it's repressive. You've got to fit in with what your family wants. Well, the level of mental health challenges that we face in our culture today is not because of the repression of a culture necessarily around you, but the, the, the word of our culture is that you should be able to be whoever you want to be. Well, if I've not achieved that, I failed. I'm a failure to myself. You actually end up feeling more guilty because you haven't lived up to your potential. Harold Abrahams in Chariots of Fire, he was a, a, a runner. He said, when the gun goes off, starter pistol goes off, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. He's got to live up to his potential. Otherwise, he has no excuse for living. It's a crushing burden to live by these rules. It's also exclusive. C.S. Lewis points out, we aren't really proud of having lots of money. We're only proud of having more money than other people. You might think in your hometown, somewhere in the countryside, you're the best violinist there. But then you come into the city and you find that the busker is actually better than you. And your self-esteem just drops. It's not enough to be good at something. You've got to be better than everyone else at it. So the Bible offers us an alternative way to get our identity. First of all, we have to look outside of ourselves for identity. No one really actually looks inside themselves, even if our culture tells us to. There is a word for someone that really doesn't care what anyone else thinks. They're called a sociopath. We need someone greater than us to affirm who we really are. You get that in the story of Esther, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I love the bad guy because he's such a classic bad guy. So Haman, he's in position, he's got power, he's like second in command of the, the Persian Empire. But it wasn't enough. He still didn't feel good enough, because when, when Mordecai wouldn't bow to him, it just got under his skin, because he knew... He wasn't everything. He needed everyone else to be saying it. And there's this fantastic point where the king is trying to think, oh, Mordecai saved my life, but I've never praised him for it. What can I do to honor this guy? I can't think of a good idea. He asked his servants, who could help me with this? And they said, oh, actually, Haman's just waiting outside your door. He wants to come and talk to you. Haman wants to come to talk to Mordecai, uh, to to the king because he wants the privilege to kill Mordecai for himself. So you've got this complete situation going on that neither of them know what's really what the other's motive is. So the king says, oh, send in Haman. I could really use his advice. He says to Haman, 
what should the king do for the man that he delights to honour? Now, Haman was pretty egocentrical and could only think, well, who is there, apart from me, that the king would most like to honour? So he comes up with this really elaborate plan. He said, ah, for the the man that the king most delights to honour, he should ride on the king's horse wear the king's robe and be taken through the streets of the city with the highest ranking official shouting, this is what will be done for the man that the king delights to honour. The king says, great idea. I really like that. So what I want you to do, go get Mordecai, put him on the horse, put the robe on him, and you're the top official that's going to go around in front of him shouting, this is what will be done for the the man the king most delighted to honour. And we think, oh dear, what a, what a sad, sad man. But as Tim Keller points out, he said, he didn't ask for the wrong thing. He just asked it of the wrong king. Haman knew he needed something outside of himself to give him an identity that would stand the test of time. He knew he needed it, but he went to the wrong person. How often in life do we go to the wrong person looking for it? This is Faramir from Lord of the Rings. Now, this line sadly didn't make it into the movie. I don't know if it made it into any extended versions. But there's a point where um, I believe it's that the hobbits want to recognise him for all that he's done and thinking about how, how to recognise him. And he says this line, the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. You know what? We have the praise of the praiseworthy. The only thing Jesus did not have in heaven He had glory. He had union with the Father. He had ultimate honour. But he didn't have us. He left the throne room of God. He sacrificed his relationship with his Father to come to the earth to die in our stead so that he could have us for eternity. That is the praise of the praiseworthy. And that is already being given to us. The second thing we see in the Bible, how do we get our identity? Well, we've got to go, we've got to recognize we were made in his image. So if you want to know what you're like, you need to have a little look at what he's like. Josh is on a quest. He wants to discover who he really is. He looks at himself and he's confused by what he reads. He can ask his best friend, but his friend doesn't care as long as he's fun to hang out with. He can ask his girlfriend, but she can tell him who she wants him to be, but she can't tell him who he was created to be. So, what can Josh do? If we've been made in the image of our creator, we need to go back to see and consider who we have been made to reflect. It is when we look at him that we see who we are because he is, I am. He's merciful, I'm forgiven. He's my defender, I'm untouchable. 
He wants his kingdom to come. I am his ambassador sent to represent this kingdom. He is the king of kings and I am one of his kings. So that's a very different direction to our culture for finding our identity. We get a better idea the more we gaze at him, not more that we gaze at our own navels. Another point here, this is, I've got a couple of clips now from a, a guy called Sam Albury. He's got some fantastic stuff on identity, so I do advise you to take some time to, to watch some of his stuff. But um, let's watch this clip, and then um, I'll pull out a few quotes from him. Worth getting to know. They will be someone who is amazing if they are created in the image of an amazing God. However, what none of us can do is simply read off from our own intuitions and feelings how we believe God has created us to be. One of the painful things that Jesus says to all of us is that how we have been born is not, is not quite right. We've all been born a bit wrong, which means that things that feel very, very innate to us and have done maybe since we were born may not be right and may not be true. They may not be a reflection of who God has made us to be. So Jesus says that when he, he says to a man called Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. Now, we're so familiar with the language of, of being born again, it's kind of become part of kind of standard Christian speak that we, we forget just how extraordinarily offensive that phrase is. Um, because Jesus isn't saying add a bit of religion and spirituality to life as though it's a bit of seasoning. When Jesus says you must be born again, he's saying, you didn't come out right the first time. And you don't need to try a bit better. You need to be made new and you need a new self. Hard hitting. So let's just focus on a few of those points. God came up with the idea of you. And earlier in the, the video he says, and he was having a good day when he thought you up. He got a kick out of thinking you up. You are amazing because he thought of you. And that's our starting point with anyone in the world. Starting point is they are valuable because God made them and they're made in his image. You have been, how you have been born is not quite right. Oof. That, that's, a, that's a sting if you let that one sink in. You were born a little bit broken, so how you feel might not reflect how he actually designed you. So my feelings have to come in line with what he says. Must be born again is offensive. I need to be made new. I need a new self. He goes on. 
Just say a little bit more here. Could be. That there's, there's, a, there's a version of us we, we sense we should be that we, we just can't be. And that is a reflection of the fact that God came up with the idea of us, but we don't do a very good job of being us. Which is why we need to be made new by Jesus. And the wonderful thing is, as we're made new by Jesus and as we follow Jesus, we don't become less ourselves. We become who we truly are. So Jesus says something very paradoxical and, again, very difficult for all of us, but something utterly wonderful. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus says, yourself needs to be denied. You need to say a, a deep and profound no to some of the things that are deepest within you and feel most defining of you. And yet, as you deny self and follow Jesus, what actually happens is you become the you that God always had in mind. You become your real self. The self you find you, you were denying is actually your distorted self. Now, I don't know how Jesus pulls this off. I just know that he does. But if every single one of us became more like Jesus, we would not become more like each other. But we would become more like the real us the real self. I think next time, instead of me talking, we just sit and watch his video, to be honest. <laughs> we don't do a good job at being us. Well, we're, you, you kind of get that in that sense of we're not living up to our potential. And that can end up feeling a sense of guilt, failure. But it's because we were designed by a perfect God that had a perfect plan for us, that there's always going to be a sense of we've fallen short of his glory because of our sin, because of putting ourselves on the throne, but God wants to make us new again so we can get back to his original design. And we're part of that process because we have to say a deep resounding no to ourselves. Yourself needs to be denied. Don't get that so much in our culture around us. The self you are denying is actually your distorted self. Just because it feels like it feels right does not mean it's right. Remember Mark McGrath once in this story, imagine I've... I've been on a transatlantic flight and I'm jet lagged. I wake up at four in the morning thinking that it's six in the morning or eight in the morning. I get up, I go to work, I get there and the building's locked. I feel it's nine in the morning by now, but it's not. So my feelings have to give way to what the clock tells me, to the reality. So our feelings can actually be a strong driver that needs to be resisted. And sometimes that false identity is not evidence this is how you've been created, but it's actually the, distorted, the distortion of the evidence of how God has created you. And I love that. The more I become like Jesus, the more I become like my true self. Man, I want to become more like him. 
I want, I want to decrease so that he can increase. And in doing that, I discover who he had designed me to be. That's what life is now. Ever since I recognized him as my Lord, my purpose in life becomes based on the answer to the question of what pleases him. It's no longer about pleasing myself. So, number three, the thing that Bible talks about is actually that God names us. So our culture tells us, you look inside yourself and you draw up your identity and you discover, oh, this is who I am because I've looked inside myself. Whereas a biblical basis is someone else gets to slap the name tag on me. Someone else outside of me comes and tells me who I am. And I'm accepting that he has lovingly slapped a name on me, which I will take the rest of my life to appreciate what that name is, who it is that he's called me to be. The Bible refers to us a few times as sheep. In John 10, verse 3, talks about sheep listen to his voice, the shepherd's voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Again, that's incredibly offensive if you think about sheep. You don't get many wild sheep because they're so stupid. There are some places, I looked it up, there are still some wild sheep, mainly live in Azerbaijan. That way. (laughs) But, you know, a shepherd has to go into the field before a sheep to remove all of the poisonous things that would kill a sheep or harm a sheep because the sheep's too stupid, they'll just eat it. If you don't lock a sheep in a space, it will wander off. If an animal is attacking a sheep, they don't always run away. That sheep's had a bad day. (laughs) They're not smart creatures. They're not self-sufficient. And that's who God has likened us to. But to allow someone else to name you is a big um, slight to our culture. And you see it. This is Jesus talking to Peter, who was always called Simon until this point. And he said, I tell you that you are. And that's what he's saying to each of you. I tell you who you are. And that's very different from what we see in the Tower of Babel, where they said, we'll make a name for ourselves. How much are we running around trying to make a name for ourselves? Wanting to work our obituary up. Wanting to work our achievements up. Because if we can get there, we will have a name that's worth owning. Keith Marsh once said, I am who I am says I am. The great I am names me and that's from where I take my identity because in John 10, 15 he said I I lay down my life for my sheep we might be stupid but he loves us he would die for us the fourth thing the Bible talks about we gain our identity when we make it about being about our father's business that's what Jesus actually says in Luke 2.49. I had an identity crisis when I was, during my year out, I've grown up 
in this church with some fairly dominant characters in my family. Um, and I always felt like the little one that was slightly overshadowed by big personalities. And when I had my opportunity to go on my year out, I got to go to New Hampshire. Neither of my brothers had been to New Hampshire before. Well, not for very long. Not enough to make a name for themselves there. And so it was my chance to get out of my family's shadow. And so I thought, yes, I'm going to discover my true identity during my year out. Because that's what year out's meant to be about. Yeah. And um, they didn't have a youth group there at the time. And so I asked them questions. And I got involved in setting up the youth group. So I had to do lots of announcements on Sunday mornings. And the British accent, it goes for miles out there. You can make a complete idiot of yourself, but it still sounds nice. And they loved me. I, like, I, I, I loved being young, cool Brit that set up the youth group out there. And I went straight from New Hampshire to Trinidad, where Daniel had been, and Nathan had been, and my dad had been so many times. And I went from being center stage to back, back seat and listening a lot. And any time I had a mic in my hands and I tried to be funny, they didn't get my jokes. <laughs> and it just flopped and I stumbled over my words and it was tough. And one guy out there said, oh man, when Nathan came to this place, he took this island by storm. Everyone loved him. You're very different to him, aren't you? <laughs> and it was a stab to the heart. And I, at that point, I thought, OK, well, I'm going to have to be bigger, louder. I'm going to have to be the life of the party. I'm going to pull out all the stops. And it just got worse. <laughs> the pressure I put myself under, I just made a complete fool of myself. And while I was going through this identity crisis, God gave me this picture of an ant. And God said, what's this? I said, an ant. Then he said, can you tell the difference between these two ants? I said, no, they're both ants. And he said, Why, do you think he cares that you can't tell the difference between one and the other? I said, no, I think he's an ant. I don't think he cares. Then he said, why doesn't he care? And my view zoomed out. And I saw this whole kind of colony of ants marching, carrying stuff. And then my view zoomed along to where they were going. And they were building a kingdom. And I thought, ah, that's why the ant doesn't care. Because what they're here for is about more than standing out. They're about building a kingdom. They're about their father's business. That was such a fundamental impact on me because it meant from then on, I could be center stage, or I could be quietly in the shadows. I could be preaching, or I could be sweeping the floor. It didn't matter anymore, because I've discovered that what I'm called to is more important than the fact that I stand out from others. We've used this phrase quite a bit recently. I'm about a great work, Nehemiah's line. I don't want to come down. It's more important than differentiating myself is the fact that I'm, 
I have been chosen by God to be part of the building of his kingdom. We've also used this phrase as well. If I limp, then I'll run with a limp. Yeah, I've not got everything right in my life. There would be things I'd change about myself, things I'd rather have about myself. But until I reach perfection, I've still got my father's business to be about, and I want to give it my all. What else am I here for? And so if I'm limping, I'm going to run with the limp that I've got. Last week, my dad talked about freedom, freedom of our salvation. When I know about, I'm, about my father's business, when I know my identity is in him, I have new freedom to give myself to him and not needing to think about myself so much. Right, now I've thrown a lot at you. So just let's have a little pause. What have you heard so far? What's standing out to you? Turn to the person next to you. You've got one minute before I can bring it down to land. Okay, I'll give you another, another chance to reflect in a few seconds, in a few minutes. So, what's the result that we should expect from a biblically gained identity? When I receive my identity from God... I'm disconnected, first of all, from my past. Here's a clip from a guy called Dan Moller. Uh, his whole teaching is fantastic, but here's just a, a clip. And hear how his identity is dis disconnected from his past. People look at me, they see my intensity, my passion sometimes. They're like, dude, wait. People used to say in the beginning, I can't get, wait till I get to where you're at. And I'm like, where is that? They think walking in the clouds above the storm. I'm like, what? They think you have joy because everything's going great. See, when you look at me, 
You can't see my, my, I grew up with an alcoholic daddy. You can't see it. You can't see that he never said I love you. You can't see that I had to pick him up at bars and he was bleeding out his behind and cirrhosis of the liver. That my mom was sick at the same time I'd carried her to bed and changed her diapers. You can't see that. You can't see that she died at a younger age than she had to because of a disease. That my wife got in identity crisis for years, had a coma, was brain damaged, and on ICU that both my kids at the same time were running wild. You can't see any of that. Why? It has nothing to do with truth. It has nothing to do with why he's in me and why I'm alive. And you're waiting for a better day? I already have one. I got Christ in me. You can't stop me now. The train's rolling. I see something. It's changed me forever, and it's put holy madness in me. <laughs> I'm not waiting for you to do right or change. He's done right and I'm changed. Yay. See, I got to live with me. I like it now. I short story, John, that. My wife's fine. She came out of the coma. Doctor never saw anything like it. Both my kids are on track and doing wonderful. My dad has no cirrhosis. He's not bleeding out the butt. And he's 77 in December. So we're doing good. He got born again through my salvation. Wow, that sure beats being a hurt boy that couldn't receive the love of the father because he didn't have a loving father. What a lame story. That has nothing to do with Christ crucified. My dad, alcoholism, nothing to do with Christ crucified. Why am I comparing the two? His identity is disconnected from his past. He's not defined by the bad hand that he was dealt. That's, that's the joy of our salvation. When we know who Christ has called us to be, the ability to be disconnected from our past. We are born of the incorruptible seed. It's about what, who he says I am, not about who my past says I am. Another result when we receive our identity from God is that I'm disconnected from my sin. You aren't who you used to be. This passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 Paul has just listed all of these people that will not, or, or conditions of people that will mean that they won't inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We've been disconnected from our failure been wiped away. It no longer defines who I am. And so now, conviction helps us become more sensitive to our true identity. When you think, oh no, I shouldn't have done that. Yes, you shouldn't have done that because that's not who you are. Isn't that so much better than running from a conviction and hiding like Adam and Eve did? To actually hear a conviction of, this is an invitation to step into your true identity. Disconnected from your sin. Don't hide from conviction. Embrace it. It's the truth being revealed to you. Paul was an incredi incredible writer. And you get from what he was saying, it's not, 
it's unusual to find someone that is completely honest about their own failures. Completely aware of their moral flaws, yet completely confident and bold in their position. And that's because he realized that his sin was disconnected from his identity. And finally, my identity is disconnected from my desire. You might have heard the saying, you are what you eat. There's a bit in Matrix where one of the characters says to, to Mouse, uh, the, the character is Mouse, he says to, to, to Neo, to deny your, your impulses is to, to deny the very thing that makes you human. That's what our culture would say. Unless you do what you feel like doing, unless you're authentic to your feeling, then you're falling short of being a true human. No. By the grace of God, my identity is disconnected from my desires. I am not what I want. Our culture would say, you are your sexual desire. No. No. That's only one of my desires anyway. I like meat, but I don't go around calling myself a carnivore. That's another desire. Why, why do we pick one desire and say that's who you are and the other one's not? By denying my fleshly desires, I am choosing to di- di- disconnect from an identity based on my desires. But that means now I'm free to serve him and be who I'm called to be. Right, I want to change this question from what have you heard today, but what are you going to do from today based on what we've looked at? So you've got one minute with the person next to you, then I'm going to give some response suggestions. Okay. So, as I was considering it, I, here's some suggestions of what you might want to might do in response. You might think, you know what, I've never made Jesus Lord of my life. I've never decided that what he thinks and what he says about me and everything should matter more. And I'm making the decision to put him on the throne and make my life about pleasing him from now on. That might be where you're at, and that's a good step to make today. You might be saying, I choose to stop trying to make a name for myself, and I'm going to accept the name that you've given me. It might be 
more what we're saying towards the end then. I want to know that my identity is disconnected from my past, from my sin, or from my desires. Thank you for listening to this podcast by Lifeline Church. We hope this message has been an encouragement to you. We are a relational church with a passion to demonstrate God's love to one another and our surrounding community in real and practical ways. We believe that God has called us to have an impact on our families, our communities and our nation. We'd love to connect further with you, so please do visit our website at lifelinechurch.co.uk, on Facebook, lifeline.church.uk or Twitter at lifelineuk.com.